Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 7th, 2015. All right, I have to invoke... The rarely ever used second light episode of the week. And I have been debating this in my mind for the better part of four or five hours. And I finally decided I have to do it this way because of what it is you're going to be listening to. I'll explain here in a second. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take a look at things in context, use sound biblical hermeneutics, to test to see what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says. And um, so, like I said, I have been debating today's episode in my mind for a long time. And the reason why is when I left the, the air yesterday, I mean, that sermon from Brian Houston was just utterly frustrating for me. You know, I've never heard anybody speak so glowingly about the gospel without actually preaching the gospel. And uh, considering the obfuscation that uh, Carl Lentz and Hillsong is engaging in in order to get out of actually uh, preaching and proclaiming what God's Word says regarding same-sex marriage and things like that, I, uh, I was hunting for a good sermon for today, and I found a fantastic one, and it's by Martin Lloyd Jones. And this thing was preached, you know, what, early, you know, late 40s, early 50s. But this sermon literally could have been delivered yesterday. It is that good. And I'm going to give it like super props because the reason why I'm giving it super props is that th- this sermon preaches specific killing law. And it's good law because the purpose of the law is to show us our sin. And uh, he's the name of the sermon, by the way, is The Unrighteous Shall Not Inherit. And it's a sermon based on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. And I'm going to play it without any interruption. And here's the idea. The reason I'm doing this is that I want you to have, without any distractions, a comparison point from what you heard in yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith to what a good law gospel preacher does with a specific text that addresses the topic of homosexuality as well as other sins. And Martin Lloyd-Jones just hits a grand slam. And here's the best part. 
he preaches the law so brilliantly that I mean you just you you are utterly condemned uh, through his preaching, but he doesn't you know basically then turn around and say and it's up to you to clean up your act. No, he makes it clear that our right standing and our righteousness before God is purely by grace through faith through the gospel. And so, I mean, it's this is super heavy loaded on the law, which is okay. You don't have to balance the two. You you just need to make sure that the solution for our sinful problem is not us, you know, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and making ourselves holy. Instead, it that our our righteousness is given as a gift by grace through faith because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. I hope I hope that makes sense. So uh, we're th- we're gonna get to it. There's not gonna be a commercial interruption. I kind of think it's that important today. I've I've like totally deviated from my standard operating procedure for a Friday because I think it's imperative that you hear this thing without any distractions and you hear it in the context of having just listened to yesterday's episode. I hope that makes sense. So without any further ado and without any commercial interruption, here is Martin Lloyd-Jones and his sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, The Unrighteous Shall Not Inherit. Here we go. The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. In the 6th chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verses 9, 10, and 11 in the 6th chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of of our God. Now there is no more ridiculous charge which is brought against the Bible or no more ridiculous criticism of the Bible, it seems to me, than the criticism that because it is an old book, it has no longer anything to say. That because it's old, it's out to date and not relevant to the present position. For there is nothing, if you really know your Bible, which you will find to be more remarkable about it than just this, that it is always contemporary, always up-to-date, always has the exact and the precise word to say at any particular juncture or stage in the long march and history of the human race. Take this statement that I've just read to you. The one I read at the beginning out of Romans 1 and these three verses that I've just read to you out of 1 Corinthians 6. They might very well have been written for just this present hour. They have the very word that is needed at this particular moment. Indeed, let me put it even further to you. To show you this point of how contemporary the Bible always is. 
those who meet here regularly Sunday nights, will know now that since the last Sunday night of April, we've been considering each Sunday night the great teaching of the Bible concerning the kingdom of God. And those who attend here must have observed that I have been preaching according to a scheme. I've had a plan and a purpose. Indeed, I planned out this whole series of sermons and the ones that are to follow for the next four weeks. During that week prior to the last Sunday in April. And according to my scheme and to my plan, I was due to preach tonight on these verses that I've just read to you. I cannot regard that as an accident, my friends. Not only is the word of God always contemporary, but there is such a thing as being led by the Spirit of God. Very well, I say that just to answer those who still, in their ignorance and flippancy, say the Bible's too old a book, it's played out, it's got nothing to say. If you can produce to me any statement from any literature or any speech or anything else, anywhere in the world tonight, that speaks so directly to this present moment as these verses we are going to consider, I should be very interested to hear of them. But I know that you can't do so. The Bible always has the word. It always has the last word. Why? Well, because it is what it says. It is the word of God. The Bible is not a human book. It's not a book of human theories and ideas and opinions and suggestions. It's a book written by different men who all agree in telling us that they were moved and carried along by the Spirit of God. They were not writing their own opinions. They were writing what God told them to write. So it's God's revelation with respect to men and his life in this world. In other words, the business of the church is to preach the Bible, to unfold and expound the message of this word of God. What, is it, what does it give us? Well, why did God ever give us the Bible? And this one text of ours answers the question. The Bible has been given in order that we might be taught certain things. Know ye not, says the apostle? Don't you know? He expects these Corinthians to know certain things. Why? Well, because he'd been there preaching to them. And because Apollos had been there preaching to them. And as the result of his preaching and that of Apollos, these people had been given knowledge, information, instruction. Now, that is the business of the Bible. It is to give us knowledge that is absolutely to our, vital to our life in this world and in the world to come. Or, if I may put this in a different way, According to the Bible, all our troubles as men and women in this world arise from one fundamental cause, and that is ignorance of certain basic fundamental truths. The ultimate trouble with men is that he is ignorant. He needs to be taught certain things plainly and clearly. And God has given us the Bible in order that we might be taught these very things. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world for exactly the same reason. I am come, he says, a witness unto the truth. He says, I am the light of the world. 
And when he says he's the light of the world, he says, I am the knowledge that the world needs. I am the only one that can enlighten men and women. I am the only one who can open their eyes and bring them out of darkness to knowledge. I am the light of the world. He came to teach about God, about men, the way of salvation, and all these matters. Very well, that is the great function of the Bible, to give us this knowledge. Know ye not. And the way in which the Bible gives us this knowledge is most remarkable. We've got a very perfect example and illustration of it in these words that we're looking at tonight. You see, the Bible is not some kind of fairy tale. People think it is. They say, pie in the sky. The Bible is unrealistic. The Bible unrealistic. My dear friend, it's the only book in the world I know that is real and realistic. It's a book of facts. It's a book of history. It's a book that tells us the plain unvarnished truth about ourselves. Look at that first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. What a description of life as it is. Doesn't spare us anything. And this one we're looking at here is exactly the same. In other words, the Bible comes and it doesn't paint some wonderful fairy tale and give us a nice feeling inside us and tell us we're all going to heaven and all going to be happy. No, no. The Bible is a book that looks you in the face, examines you in the depth, tells you the truth about yourself, unvarnished, exposes it all. And then it proceeds to deal with the two main questions. It says, that is life. And it is the Bible alone which tells us what life is really like in this world. Your newspapers, they boast about making revelations. They claim to examine and to give true reports, but they don't, of course. They pick out certain facts now and again. But if you really want to know the truth about yourself, don't go to a newspaper. The newspapers are always praising us. They're always playing up to us. They wouldn't sell if they didn't. They exist on the numbers of papers that they sell. The newspapers are liars about the fundamental problems of life. They don't know them. They're partly the cause of the present muddle. They are not the organs that reveal the truth about men and about society and about this nation. The Bible's the only book in the world that does that. It's the only honest book. It's the only truthful book. And it is, I say, because it is the word of God. And then, having put the facts before us in this unvarnished manner, almost violent manner, the Bible then deals with two questions. It now tells us, first of all, why things are like that. That's the first thing we want to know, isn't it? It's not enough, you know, just to talk about the scandal. The question is, why is there such a thing? Now, that's what the Bible tells us. It gives us the cause and the explanation of why things are as they are. And then secondly, thank God, it tells us about the only way in which these things can be put right. Now, that is a summary to you of the whole of the message of the Bible. The Bible has just got those two points. Why is man as he is? Why is the world as it is? How alone... Man and the world can be put right. That's the great message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And that's what we've got in a most extraordinary summary form in these three verses that we're looking at at this moment. And all I want to do is to hold them before you. 
What is it that we need to be taught? Know ye not? Are you in ignorance of these matters? What are they? Well, the first is this. The first thing that we need to be taught is the terrible danger of being deceived. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Don't be deceived. Now, there's the first danger. Everywhere the Bible warns us against this terrible danger of being deceived. Indeed, we can put it like this. That the case of the Bible from beginning to end is that man is in ignorance because he has been deceived. The whole story of the human race has gone wrong because man has been deceived by the devil. Now go back, Genesis 3, there it is. God makes the world, makes it perfect, makes man perfect, puts him in paradise. Well, he should have lived happily, he should have enjoyed the companionship of God, and he'd have been given the gift of immortality, and that would have been the story. But it hasn't been the story. The story has been one of unhappiness, jealousy, envy, murder, wars, all the horrors that are depicted in the Bible and that we are familiar with in secular history. Why has the history of the human race and of the world been what it has been? And the Bible says there's only one answer. The devil came in, and we are told of the devil that he's more subtle, he was more subtle than any of the beasts of the field. And it was in his subtlety, in his deceitfulness, that he deceived Adam and Eve. That's a point which is made in many places in the Holy Scriptures. We are told by this same apostle in his second epistle to these very Corinthians, in the 11th verse, he puts it like this, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's the trouble. It is always the trouble. You see, you get the same thing taught exactly in the epistle to the Hebrews, who warns his people in this way, exhort one another, he says, daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's the whole cause of the trouble. Man's story has been what it's been because he has been deceived by the devil and the deceitfulness of sin. Now that has been the trouble according to the Bible from the very dawn of history. It was the trouble in the time of the Apostle Paul, in the time of our Lord himself. He teaches the danger of men who have even listened to the gospel being deceived by the deceitfulness of riches. That's the seed sown amongst the thorns, you remember. The deceitfulness of riches. Men are deceived by this and are kept from understanding the real meaning of life. And he prophesies that it's going to be like that even unto the very end of the age. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, even so it shall be. As it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, even so it shall be. There it is. Deceit is the central and the most essential trouble with the human race. Now then, there is always this danger of our being deceived. Don't be deceived, says Paul. 
Don't be misled. Don't be fooled. And the same thing needs to be said to this modern generation. And there are certain respects in which, in particular at the present time, the human race is in danger of being deceived. What are they? I've made a list of them. Here's the first. The first is, as I have already said, that the Bible cannot speak to us now. Because, well, it was written nearly 2,000 years ago and longer even than that. And we've learned so much since. We've advanced so much. We've got such wonderful new knowledge. And men advances and becomes better from age to age. We believe in evolution, in the advance and the development. How can an old book like this speak to us any longer? That is one of the signs and master strokes of the devil and his brilliance. He prevents men even reading the Bible. They won't even listen to it. They put it out of court. So they're bereft of the one message that can help them. And he puts it on that card. He deceives them in that way into thinking that the devil, that the Bible I say, has got nothing to teach modern men. Well now, if we've got nothing but my text tonight, we've got more than enough to answer that, haven't we? We are told the Bible doesn't speak to us today because we are different. Well, what are we like? This is what they were like 2,000 years ago. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Are we no longer like that? There's no need to say any more, is there? The present crisis is because some of us are like that. So the Bible is speaking to men as he is tonight. He's the same as he always was. Don't be deceived, my dear friend. This book is speaking to you now. It's as up to date as it was 2,000 years ago. Secondly, the second manner of deceit is to say that moral ideas change. Have you been listening to the people being interviewed by the television gentlemen? They go around with their microphones. What do you think of this crisis? Well, they say so many of them, you know, 20 years ago I'd have been horrified at this, but now we've got new ideas now. We don't think as our fathers used to think. We don't think as they thought 100 years ago. We don't think as they thought in the times of the Bible. We've got knowledge. What they regarded as sin, we can explain biologically. We can explain it medically. We can explain it psychologically. They say, of course, you know, people used to be very ignorant and they used to condemn things. But with our new knowledge and our new understanding, we no longer think like that. In other words, you see, they say morality is something relative. There is no such thing, they say, as an absolute morality. There are no eternal principles and truths. What may be right for one generation is wrong for another. What was wrong for one is right for the next. And so we are being told now that fornication is not always wrong. Sometimes it's right and a good thing, we are told. Adultery is not always wrong. Sometimes it may be right. Homosexuality is no longer wrong. It can be absolutely right for certain people. To tell a lie is not always wrong. If you want to show your love to your family and shield them and protect them from harm, it may be right in such circumstances. Everything's relative. No eternal standard of morality and of righteousness and of truth. That's the modern teaching. And I'm here to say tonight that according to the Bible, that is nothing but sheer deception. 
Be not deceived, my dear friend. You have no knowledge that entitles you to change moral canons and principles. None at all. Your psychology does not answer which school of psychology you do belong to. They're cancelling one another out. And they're all in the melting pot at the moment, in a sense. There is no scientific knowledge that in any way affects these moral canons. None. Man's making his own laws just to please himself and to excuse himself and condone his evil. And so you get the present moral muddle. That's the second form of deceit. But here's a third. And this is perhaps in many ways the, the most serious one I've mentioned so far. It is this. That you can have morality without godliness. Now that's been the cause of the trouble in my opinion. The moral standards in this country have been slipping and have reached their present deplorable position. For one main reason. Namely, that we have been taught that you can have morality without godliness, which they interpret like this. That the moral teaching of the Bible is very good, but we can't possibly accept today its theology, its doctrines. Now, there was a man who put this very clearly, a man who was highly respected. He was a great man, and a good man, I've no doubt, in a moral sense. But to me, he struck at the very foundations, not only of Christianity, but of morality, in which he was so interested. I'm referring to the late Lord Burkett. These are the men, in my opinion, who've sold the past. This is what he said. He was being interviewed on the television. And he was reminded that once upon a time he'd been a Methodist local preacher. But he's no longer a Methodist local preacher. Why? What was the reason? Oh, well, he said, you know, as one gets on and one learns and one finds things out, well, well, there's a change. He says, no, I no longer believe the doctrines of Christianity. I hold on to the ethic, he said. I hold on to the ethic, of course. The ethic of Jesus, he says, is the highest ethic the world has ever had. I no longer believe the doctrines. That's the teaching, that you can hold on to the ethic without the doctrines. You can have morality without godliness. And that has been the fatal teaching that has landed us in the present moral morass. Men have fondly believed that you could hold on to these good things that had been taught by Christianity while shedding the whole basis of Christianity. The modern position is demonstrating to us in a particularly painful, poignant manner that you cannot have morality without theology. That if you shed the doctrine, you'll soon lose your morality. And as a nation, we've lost it. Now there is the next, but let me hurry to another one. The other way, in, the next way in which men deceive themselves is this. Is to say that death is the end and that there's nothing beyond it. That's the common belief today that when a man dies, that that's the end of the story, he is finished, his life is gone, his body is put in a grave, there's the end of him. But on what grounds do you say that? What basis have you for saying that? My dear friend, it is sheer deceit. You're being deceived. Men say, I no longer believe in life after death. But they can't prove it. It's a mere assertion. It's a mere theory. It's a mere statement. But people believe it. And because they believe it, they've ceased to worship God. It is pure deceit. Be not deceived. And then the last one that I mention is this. 
that God, if there is a God, is entirely love. And therefore, because God is love, there is really no moral standard, there is no judgment, there is no punishment, and there is no hell. That is something that's being ridiculed, of course. The idea that God is a righteous judge and that he's going to judge the whole world at the end of time and that some people are going to be punished in hell everlasting. Out upon the suggestion, they say, it is impossible, it cannot be true. It isn't true. And they haven't a vestige of truth for what they're, of proof for what they're saying. It is just sheer deceit. They're being deceived by the devil into believing that God is entirely love and that we need never fear a judgment. We mustn't talk about any form of punishment whatsoever and no form of retribution. Well, now I say that all these are but examples of the modern deceit, for the answer to them is given in our very passage tonight. These are the facts. Be not deceived. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, the answer to the modern deceit is this, that God is. That God is our maker and creator. And that what matters is what God says. Not what we think, not what we think God should say. That God is what he is, not what we think he ought to be. That we can't conjure up a picture of God. That we, by philosophy, can't create a God. That's what we're trying to do. And dignitaries in the church are doing it. And I hold them largely responsible for the present moral collapse. I'm not interested in the denunciations of bishops of what's happening at the present time when they themselves deny the essence of the gospel. They are in many ways the father of, fathers of the moral collapse. You can't, I say, separate godliness from morality. And the great statement of the Bible is that God is over all. He's made us and not we ourselves, and that we are all in his hands, and that it is what he says that matters, not what we say. We say there are no moral standards, they're always changing. We say it doesn't matter, God is love and all's going to be well. The Bible says be not deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what God says. And there is no excuse for our ignorance. There is no excuse for our being deceived. God has revealed this to us. He's revealed it from the very beginning of history. There's no need to be uncertain as to what God wants and expects and demands of us. God has made it perfectly plain. He started off, you see, even in the Garden of Eden itself. He made this known to Adam and Eve. He said, if you keep my commandments, I'll bless you. If you don't, out you'll go. And out they went, and they've been out ever since. There is, my dear friend, an eternal law of righteousness. God's law is an absolute law. It's in the heart of every man. It's in all our consciences. He's written his law in our hearts as well as promulgating it in an external sense as he did in the Ten Commandments. But not only has God made it plain and clear that there is a moral standard, a moral law, what he demands, he makes it equally clear that there is to be a judgment. 
Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. These people whom he mentions shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What does this mean? Well, you see, this is just another way of saying this. Every man in this world is in one of two positions. He is either in the kingdom of God or else he is not in the kingdom of God. That's the question. Have you inherited the kingdom of God or haven't you inherited the kingdom of God? You see, that's judgment. The whole of the human race is in one of these two positions. And all of us will have to stand before God. And we find ourselves either in the kingdom of God or else outside the kingdom of God. That's judgment. And you see, the Bible's message is that this is the most important thing in the whole world. Why? Well, for this reason. That this is what determines our everlasting state and condition. That's why the Apostle Paul was so anxious about these people. He says, don't be deceived. Don't let the devil deceive you. Don't let him deceive you into saying, I'm in the kingdom of God. I can therefore drink and commit adultery and do everything I like. God forgives me. Oh, he says, look here. If you go on like that, you're outside the kingdom and you're going to hell. Judgment, damnation. This is what the modern world no longer believes. This is what Great Britain no longer believes. And that is why Great Britain is as she is. There's no fear of God. Every man's his own God. Every man does what he thinks is right. Why shouldn't he? And people explain him and condone it. They may, if in a pharisaical manner, all jump on a certain man, but they're guilty of the same things themselves in their thoughts. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's arrogant rebellion against God, but it's facing a God who is a judge eternal, who's going to judge the whole world in righteousness. And this is the vital thing, that the judgment will send us either to heaven or to hell. It's either eternal bliss or eternal misery. Everybody's concerned about the state of the country, but have you heard anybody talking about the state of the soul and eternal destiny? That's the thing that matters. And it matters to every one of us. Here then is one of the first things the Bible teaches us. This terrible, horrible danger of being deceived. But let me hurry to the second thing it teaches us. And that is that nothing matters in the sight of God but righteousness. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? In the sight of God, there's only one thing that matters with respect to men. What is it? Not ability and cleverness. This is the vogue and the cult of the clever men today, isn't it? Clever. He's clever, they say. He's brilliant. No, no, says the Bible. Not ability and cleverness. Not knowledge, culture, sophistication. Men about town. The clever people interested in art. Interested in... Oh, how one sophistication. No, no, says the Bible. Enjoyment and pleasure. Money, wealth, never had it so good. That's what we've been told, isn't it? That's the thing that matters. Plenty of money, never had it so good. And the country's never been so bad. No, no, in the sight of God, there's only one thing that matters. It is righteousness. What is this? Well, it means, if you like, character. The only thing that matters in the sight of God, thank God, is character. 
It's not whether I'm clever or lacking in ability. It's not whether I'm learned or ignorant. It's not my bank balance or lack of bank balance. No, no. It's what I am. It's my character. It's my soul face to face with God. Righteousness. This is the only thing that matters with God in a nation or in an individual. Righteousness exalteth a nation. Not cleverness. Righteousness. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Though they may be great and have been great and sing the glories of the past. Where there is no vision. Where people live for sport and pleasure and money and getting on and cleverness. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Rome perish. Others have perished since. Is this country perishing? Where there is no vision, no knowledge of righteousness, the people perish. I say nothing matters in the sight of God, but just this matter of righteousness. God revealed it in the Garden of Eden. He revealed it in the Ten Commandments. His own people have always realized it. Listen to the psalmist. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall dwell in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Not your clever fellow, not your brilliant men of affairs, not the man who can speak cleverly, the sophisticated modern man about town. No, no, clean hands, pure heart. That's what God wants. David understood it. He said, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. Yes, says our Lord, though if your righteousness shall not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. He says it again. Ye are they that justify yourselves before men, but God seeth your hearts, and that which is highly esteemed amongst men, you get on, you're a cabinet minister, you're praised by men, highly esteemed amongst men, is abomination in the sight of God. Righteousness. Man was meant to live as God made him, and as God made him to live. Man was meant to live to the glory of God and to keep his commandments. He was meant to be upright. He was meant to be pure and clean and honest and noble. He, he was put upon his feet that he might look into the face of God and enjoy his companionship. That's righteousness. But you see, the Bible goes on to say that not only is that the only thing that God demands of us, it goes on to tell us that we are all unrighteous by nature. There is none righteous, no, not one. In spite of all the divisions into class and education and money and all the rest of them, all are unrighteous. Unrighteousness takes different forms. We are not all guilty in detail of these particular sins, but we are all sinners. There are many in this land tonight who are guilty of these very sins that are mentioned in the list. The fact that you may not, my dear friend, doesn't mean that you're righteous. To be righteous means that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and that you love your neighbor as yourself. Are you righteous? Are you living to the glory of God and to his praise? That's righteousness. None are righteous. The whole world 
lieth guilty before God, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What's the cause of this? The Bible tells us. And this is the vital message. Every one of us born into this world is unrighteous because men fell from God. Adam was righteous until he listened to the devil. He fell and became unrighteous. And man is unrighteous still because he's turned his back upon God. He's a rebel against God. And he's become the slave of the devil and the slave of these lusts and passions. He becomes debased, depraved, disgusting, vile, a miserable slave because he has turned his back upon God. There is the second great thing that is taught us in the Bible. That nothing matters in the sight of God and in the presence of God but righteousness. And there we see ourselves all condemned, all sinners, and all unrighteous. But thank God the gospel doesn't stop there. It tells us all this, we need to know it. Be not deceived. No unrighteous person shall inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, and there comes your gospel, and here is the essential message of the gospel. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me tell you what the message of the gospel is. What has the gospel got to say to this modern position in England at this moment? What has the gospel got to say about this deplorable state in which we find ourselves as a nation? And it's not only true of this nation, it's true of all the nations. What's the message? Well, let me tell you in a hurried word what it isn't. It isn't a mere message of denunciation of sin. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. Your moral men are holding up their hands in horror tonight. Not Christians, but they're moral men, and they are denouncing. You don't need to be a Christian to denounce sin. Neither is the message of the church merely one of exhortation or merely one of appeal. I read of a church dignitary saying that we must clean up the stables the other day. Clean up the stables. And they're all expressing their opinions upon this moral degeneracy and so on. My dear friends, that's nothing but Phariseeism. Our Lord has dealt with that once and forever. Do you remember the story told at the beginning of the 8th chapter of John's Gospel? They brought a woman to him that had been caught in the very act of adultery. And they rushed her into his presence. And they wanted to know what his verdict was on the case. And he, you remember, instead of answering them, began to write on the sand on the ground. And they were pressing him and he looked at them and said, He that is without sin amongst you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And they all slinked out quietly and as quickly as they could, leaving the woman and our blessed Lord together alone. Be careful what you're doing, my friend. 
It's a very simple, simple thing to point a finger of scorn at a man and to condemn a man. What of you? Is your heart clean? Are your hands clean? Be careful. Examine yourself. It's an easy thing to make scapegoats. I'm not here to defend any man, nor anything that has done. There is no defense for sin. But I am here to say this, that the gospel doesn't merely denounce it. It doesn't make, merely make a moral appeal. We are going to hear a lot of that in the future. You'll hear great appeals to the nation to pull together. And we're going to put up a show of being Christian again. It's of no value. It's sham. It's Pharisaism. It is merely a message of denunciation of sin and the sinner. Neither is it just an appeal for more moral education or any other form of education. The last thing I want to do is to be political, and I'm not political in what I'm going to say. The last thing I'm anxious to do is to knock him in when he's in trouble and in difficulties. But I am constrained to say that I couldn't for the life of me understand the mentality of the Prime Minister when at a ceremony in Brighton he uttered these words last Tuesday, July the 11th, June the 11th. He was speaking, you remember, at that graduation ceremony in connection with the new Sussex University. And in the present position, this is what he said. The strength of a nation depends on its education. The strength of a nation depends on its education. Education, he went on, is the key to unlock the storehouse of the future. The most valuable national asset was the brain, imagination, and creative power of our people. Now, if he'd said that education was a good thing, I'd agree with him. But when he tells us that the strength of a nation depends on education, when he's in a terrible predicament at this moment because one of his own ministers who had received the best education that this country can give, I frankly don't understand his reasoning. Education, he says, is the strength of a nation. It is the key to unlock the storehouse of the future. And yet his very problem is in a man who's had the best that education can give him and who yet is a moral failure. This is not a political remark because the other political parties say exactly the same thing. They all believe that education is the solution and the savior. They teach materialism. What we want is plenty of money, plenty of education. Let's educate our people. And yet here are the facts flying in their faces. Education is not enough. Education is not the key. Education is not the strength of a nation. It is your best educated people who are some of the ringleaders in vice and evil and who can sink to these deplorable levels. No, no, the message is not one of education. Neither is it merely to tell men and women to believe in Christ and to say, Lord, Lord, and say that everything is then all right. That's the very thing that Paul is warning these Corinthians against. Yeah, were these members of the church at Corinth. And yet some of them were guilty of foul and terrible sins. He has mentioned them in the fifth chapter. 
And they thought they were all right because they believed in Christ. And there are many today, too many by far in our churches. They say, I took my decision for Christ. I gave myself to Christ. And they think that puts them right. They can live as they like. Antinomianism. Living in sin. Living in dishonesty. Living carelessly, slackly. And saying, Lord, Lord, it doesn't work, my friend. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Merely to say that you believe is not enough. That's not the gospel. So I'm afraid that we are going to see a good deal of this. We shall have now some kind of moral cleansing and people will attend services and we'll be told in the press that the cabinet ministers are attending services and people are showing an interest in religion. If it isn't a change in heart, it's a lie. It is deceit again. An appearance, an attendance at the house of God is not enough, though it is a good and an excellent thing in itself. What is the message of the gospel then? Well, thank God it's here. It is a message of salvation. We don't denounce sinners. We save them. We don't point a finger of scorn at them like a Pharisee. We go to them and say, look here, you can be delivered out of this. You can be washed. You can be cleansed and renewed. You can be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a message of hope. It's a message of salvation. But let's make sure that we've got the message of the New Testament. Not the message of the Bishop of Woolwich. Not the message of the Bishop of Suffolk. No, no. The message of the New Testament. The old, old gospel. This plain, unvarnished word. This is the message. And it is a message of salvation. It gives a hope for the vilest. Why? Well, because it doesn't merely appeal to men to pull themselves together. It tells them that God will take hold of them. It is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. It is a message that comes to men and women in the depth of degradation and sin and evil and tells them that they can be converted, that they can be saved, that they can be renewed. Listen, let me read it again to you. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's what you were, says Paul. But you're no longer that. Why? Oh, because you've been washed. You haven't done it. You've been washed. You've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the power of our God. I'm privileged to preach a gospel that can wash us from the filth of sin, a gospel that can cleanse us and purify us from the pollution of sin, a gospel that can absolve us from its guilt and give us a robe of righteousness to stand in the presence of our holy God. This is a gospel that not only preaches forgiveness, it preaches renewal, it preaches a rebirth, it preaches a regeneration, it preaches a new man can rise out of the ashes of the failure and walk as a saint before God. He were, but, such were some of you, but... You have been washed, you have been sanctified, and you have been justified. How does it happen? He answers the question. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the Christian message. 
that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came out of heaven into this world in order to save us. He didn't come merely to teach us and to exhort us and to condemn our sin and say, this is how to live, follow me. He knew we couldn't. Here we are, guilty of lusts and passions, slaves, and we're all slaves of something. Isn't there something that gets you down? Don't you feel ashamed as I'm speaking? What of that sin you keep on repeating? Why don't you stop it? You're a slave to it, that's why. You're a creature of lust and passion. It may not be adultery, but it may be jealousy and envy and malice and spite and hatred or an inordinate ambition and pride in the things of this world. That's lust, that's slavery. He didn't come to condemn us. He didn't come to exhort us. He didn't merely come to give us an example. He came to save us. And it's the power of God alone that can save us. He came, what for? Well, to reconcile us to God. This justifying, that's our trouble. We are guilty before God. And how can we have communion? And how can we be blessed when we are guilty? I can't undo my past. I can't live the law. What can I do? Christ came and he's done it for me. He became man. He put himself under the law. He's kept it. He's borne my sins in his own body on the tree. He's been smitten for me. And in him God forgives me. And he takes his righteousness and puts it on me. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. When an adulterer or a fornicator or a man who lies to his wife or a murderer or even a pervert of the worst type, when he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is delivered, he's washed, He's justified. He's sanctified. The Christ of God has come to deliver him, to lift him out, and to set him upon his feet and establish his goings. I'm not here to denounce a poor man who's a sinner like I am. I'm here to tell him, if he could but hear my words, and God grant that he may, that he can be delivered, he can be pardoned, he can be renewed, he can start a new life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the Christian message. Not your Phariseeism, not your decency and pretense and play acting at religion, but new men with righteousness in their hearts and the righteousness of Christ upon them, living to the glory of God, born again, entirely new men. This is it. And it is all possible because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came from heaven and died on that cross. We're going to remember it in the bread and the wine. His body was broken. His blood was shed. What for? That you might be washed in it and delivered from the guilt and the power of sin by it. And then the Spirit comes into you and gives you power and strength and might and makes you more than conqueror. Here's the gospel. Thank God it is. We don't merely point fingers and condemn. We do condemn. But we wound in order to heal. We knock down in order to lift up. We show men their guilt and their helplessness and their woe, that they may submit to the power of God and to salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. What of you, my friend? Forget the case for the moment and consider yourself. Are you righteous? Are you ready to stand in the presence of God at the bar of eternal judgment? 
Are you living a righteous and a holy life? Are you clean? Are your hands clean? Is your heart clean? Is your mind clean? Is your imagination clean? What of you? Forget everybody. Start with yourself. And realize tonight that you need to be washed. You need to be sanctified, separated from the world unto God by the Spirit, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, my dear friend, have you seen it? Can you use the words that were written by John Newton? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. Have you? Have you seen this message? And are you ready to say, I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord, to thee for cleansing in thy precious blood that flowed on Calvary. I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. If you've not realized you are in need of cleansing, you are in no position to point a finger at somebody else. You are unclean yourself. If you haven't seen that nothing but the blood of Christ can cleanse you from the guilt and the power of sin, you are not a Christian. You are a miserable, self-righteous Pharisee. See your own blackness and darkness and filth and pollution. Turn to him and say, I am coming, Lord, coming now to thee. Wash me, cleanse me in the blood that flowed on Calvary. And you know, when you're washed and when you're cleansed, you'll have a little bit of sympathy with fallen men and women. You won't make a sensation of it and talk self-righteously. You'll be sorry for them. You'll pray for them. You'll want to tell them the message that they can be delivered. Why do they live this filthy life? It's because they don't know of a better one. It's because they're ignorant of the gospel. It's because they're being deceived by the devil and by modern learning, often preached by the Christian church herself. And the only people who can help moral failures in this world and be of any value in society at this moment are men and women who, having realized their own filth, their own vileness, their own impurity, their own utter hopelessness, have turned to him and have said, Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin, the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. And they've turned to him and he's washed and cleansed them. And they can tell others that they have but to do the same thing. And they will know the moral, spiritual cleansing that the Son of God alone can give. And the new walk and the new life which the Holy Spirit of God alone can enable one to walk. He are washed, but he are sanctified, but he are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And by the Spirit of our God, thank God, 
In spite of our present position, there is a hope tonight. It's the only hope. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Dead for our transgressions. Raised again for our justification. Do you know him? Are you resting upon him? Have you been washed and cleansed and renewed by him? Amen. Amen. Mm. What'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or in previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>